Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And it's good to be back. We usually take a hiatus uh, end of the year with some special programming and uh, put uh, Access Utah uh, to bed for a couple of weeks, uh, but it's good to be back as well. Uh, the Great Salt Lake is Salt Lake Tribune's 2021 Utah of the Year. Quoting the Tribune, drought and increasing diversions of water from upstream have left the Great Salt Lake less great. It's smaller and shallower than it has been in the time since European settlers first started keeping records. Its level is 10 feet below what's long been considered normal. Antelope Island is not really an island anymore. The ripple effect of these changes uh, will have are serious and will affect everyone who lives along the densely populated Wasatch Front, even if they never go out and see the lake themselves. Representative Brad Wilson, Speaker of the Utah House of Representatives, is convening a Great Salt Lake Summit. That's happening tomorrow. And ahead of that summit, we're talking about the Great Salt Lake. And we welcome in on the telephone, uh, Linda Freitas, Executive Director of Friends of the Great Salt Lake. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. Also on the phone, Marcel uh, Shoup, uh, Director of the National Audubon Society's Saline Lakes Program. Welcome to you. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. Good. It's a pleasure to be here as well. Good morning. And in studio with me, uh, uh, Wayne Wurtzbaugh, who is... Uh, Emeritus Professor of Watershed Sciences has studied Great Salt Lake uh, for for years, I guess. Uh, Professor Wurtzbaugh, thanks for coming in. Yeah, good morning, and thanks for having us. Uh, so I want to start with you, Professor Wurtzbaugh. This is, uh, you know, what we're hearing is 10 feet uh, below what has long been considered normal. Um uh, smaller and shallower than it has been in the time since European settlers first started keeping records. Uh, you know, that's, that is alarming. We are hearing alarm bells going off now, but I want to put this in context. Uh, you've been studying the lake for a long time. I, is it really, as we're hearing, lowest level we've seen? Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I, I looked it up this morning, and uh, yeah, this morning we're at 4190.3 feet. So that's about 16 and a half feet below what we would consider the, the normal level. And we think uh, modeling estimates from the Division of Water Resources uh, people indicate about 11, 10 to 11 feet of that is due to water diversions for agriculture and our lawns and a whole bunch of other uses we put that water to. And then about uh, six and a half feet is because of drought. We don't really know if that drought is just a drought and we're going to reverse it. We've got a good start this this December anyway. Uh, or whether that uh, is a long-term thing we're going to look at with climate change. And the models do predict that climate change is going to be driving things down. And so yeah. it, it's, it's a little ominous. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's probably a good word. Linda Freitas, uh, you, you know, you've been out there on the lake you know, for, for a while, what just uh, as you experience the lake with this low water level, what are, what are you feeling personally? Well, uh, it's interesting because I've been getting lots of calls and lots of emails from people who are, um, because of the good media coverage, um, are suddenly more aware of um, the lake's dire straits, if you will. And um, the observations, of course, are obvious, um, certainly impacts to the water level and not seeing birds where you might usually be seeing them. Um, certainly people are distressed over the fact that 
Um, there's a concern about the exposed lake bed and dust coming off of that lake bed and exacerbating air quality issues that we have to live with. Um, but I think the general disposition and certainly um, personally, I just find it very distressing um, that we're we're finding ourselves um, in a situation with the lake as low as it is um, and finally getting around to thinking about um, ways in which we can address that and change um, our behaviors and also um, help bring the lake to a level of sustainability. Marcel Shoup, uh, later in the program, we'll talk about, uh, you know, legislation. There's been legislation nationally proposed. There's legislation at the state level proposed. Uh, the governor's put this into his budget uh, now. I wonder on a personal level, though, it, um, how dire does it have to, have to be to get this attention, I suppose? Well, I mean, certainly this year has um, highlighted what has been decades-long decline in Great Salt Lake, but this drought has really caught people's attention. And as um, Lynn DeFreitas mentioned, the coverage um, in the media has helped also highlight this for people actually globally. And um, so that attention is is helping um, raise well, level of awareness and we're definitely concerned. Um, but I think that we also should recognize that over the course of the last several years, a number of groups have been, um, you know, steering groups and committees and um, Great Salt Lake Advisory Council have been working to try to identify recommendations and solutions to start turning that trajectory around. And so I think there is um, hope for trying to um, change what looks like a very scary future for Great Salt Lake. Yeah, very good point. There, there. Are, lest we forget, there are a lot of good folks uh, like yourselves here uh, working on this problem for a long time. Um, Professor Wurzbaugh, I want to start with you on on this one before we start to get into maybe some solutions and uh, look at a hopefully a rosier future. I want to outline maybe worst case scenarios. Um, let me put it this way: Could Great Salt Lake end up like the RLC? Uh. Yeah, it certainly could if we we don't take any action. Uh, there's, uh, you know, we have the Bear River Development Project online, lands being purchased for uh, right-of-ways to, to get that project underway, and that's going to lower the lake, you know, per, perhaps another foot, something like that, if that comes to be. Um, more worrisome, I guess, is that the states of Idaho and Wyoming also have rights to the Bear River water uh, in the Bear River Compact. And uh, they could, uh, if they exercise their rights, uh, lower it probably another couple feet. So those are certainly uh, worrisome aspects. And then uh, a bigger and more unknown, I guess, would be climate change, which is predicted to uh, decrease uh, runoff of 20 percent uh, in in the basin, and so if all those factors uh, came to be, uh, we certainly would, could have an Aral Sea situation with you know, the lake in in the former Russia, where that's almost all dried up. So yeah. with huge dust storms and the loss, they had a fishery because they weren't as saline. But anyway, we're we're looking at you know pretty dire circumstances. 
if all those uh, things will align in a in a negative sense. You you see pictures, uh, photographs of the RLC now. It's just heartbreaking. Uh, you you told me before we went out there, you've not been to the RLC, but you've been to a lake in Iran, which uh, has had kind of a similar fate, I guess. Right, uh, Lake Urmea in uh, uh, northwest Iran, uh, which is a lake uh, we call a sister lake to the Great Salt Lake because it was the same size, the same depth, divided in half by a transportation causeway. Just a whole lot of similarities. Uh, but about 25 years ago, the Iranians began developing water, building dams, and pretty much dried up the whole thing. And the salinities are now so high they can't, they don't, no longer have brine shrimp, and they've lost most of their birds, and they have very huge dust storms, which is what we're starting to see here at Great Salt Lake, and certainly what's a major impact of when the Aral Sea was dried up by water diversions as well. So it's happening in a lot of lakes worldwide. We've got increasing populations. We're trying to grow food in arid regions where there's just not much water, lots of sunlight, and it's warm, but uh, uh, it's really not sustainable the way we're going with population growth and our desire to develop that water. Linda Freitas, uh, of, of course, we're, we're, I've been making references to uh, lakes around the world. We, we, here in the United States, Owens Lake is, uh, is a cautionary tale, right? Yeah, and, and that's right in our own region. And um, it, was, it is um, emblematic of uh, an example of what happens when a system um, is completely drained dry um, because of water diversion uh, to be transported to uh, growing population centers like Los Angeles and California. And then, you know, the results of an exposed lake bed, um, air quality issues, um, Owens Lake um, is notable for, um, you know, being a major um, air quality PM10 problem that the state of California had to address. And um, today, even with mitigation efforts underway, um, the the lake is a mere shadow of its, itself. Um, there are very curious uh, measures to um, abate the dust um, by turning over uh, the lake bed um, and um, putting selective areas of water um, back into the system. Um, but certainly, um, you know, it's it's an example of um, a place that we don't want to find ourselves. Um, to Wayne's point, there are so many examples around the globe um, that we um, recognize are, you know, <laughs> insightful. And um, we have the opportunity, I think, to um, get some traction and to make some some positive changes for the system that we are responsible for maintaining as a public trust resource for the people of Utah um, in perpetuity, I should add. So Owens Lake is an example right in our own backyard, if you will, and um, billions of dollars um, are, are costing that mitigation um, to address um, deficits that the ecosystem um, experienced because of water diversions. Uh, we turn to Marcel Shoup. Uh, let me ask it this way. I asked Professor Wurzbaugh about worst-case scenario, and I guess worst case is, you know, like just dries up. Um, 
present course, present course, is that sustainable? Um, do it, it, change is needed, I guess, to, to restore the lake, even to a kind of a low level. Right. We've, we've got to figure out how we can ensure that we can have continued and enhanced water flows going to Great Salt Lake, as well as retaining um, some of the flows that are already going there. And so that is definitely, uh, that definitely has to be part of the solution. Um, and we need to do that so that we can help retain all the different kinds of services that this wonderful resource provides to Utahns and, frankly, um, regionally and hemispherically and internationally, frankly. Well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to get into uh, you know, outlining specific problems uh, that a, a low lake level uh, produces. When you're talking about uh, you know, the wildlife that lives in the water and, and depends on the water, uh, air quality, um, economics, uh, some of those specific uh, areas uh, following this. We're talking about the Great Salt Lake and uh, there is a Great Salt Lake Summit happening tomorrow, convened by the Speaker of the House. Um, and that's happening. Linda Freitas, is that, is that in, where is that? Is that the Davis? Uh, yes, it's the Davis County Conference Center or Convention Center, um, Antelope uh, Drive, um, off of I-15, uh, just a little south of there. Okay. Starts, I think, at 8 or 8.30 in the morning and goes through the day, I suppose. Um, I believe it starts at 8. Marcel, you can you can uh, confirm this, and it goes until possibly noon, ah, or shortly okay. thereafter. Yeah. It's a half-day um, event. Okay. Very good. Uh, so that's happening uh, tomorrow. Uh, we'll get into talking as we go through the hour, some proposals from the legislature. There's some uh, legislation on national level as well. The governor's uh, put some... Uh, fairly significant money in the budget uh, to, to study the problem and help with the problem. Um, but uh, we'll be talking about that as we go along. Great Salt Lake is our subject, and we have with us Linda Freitas with the Friends of the Great Salt Lake, Wayne Wurtzbaugh, USU Emeritus Professor, and Marcel Shoup, who's with National Audubon Society's Saline Lakes Program. More following this. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking about the Great Salt Lake, this great resource. Uh, it lends its name to our capital city um, and uh, such a presence uh, in our lives, even if you don't live near it. Uh, well, the Great Salt Lake is at an all time low in water level. Uh, a lot of reasons for that. Of course, the drought, uh, climate change, diversions uh, for, for us, I suppose. Um, and the population is only increasing, and uh, a lot of people have been looking at this problem. Uh, now that seems to be gaining momentum. The governor's put the, some of this into his budget. Uh, we have a national legislation. We'll talk about that a little later. Representative Brad Wilson, Speaker of the Utah House, is convening a Great Salt Lake Summit. Uh, that's happening tomorrow, uh, 8 to noon, uh, Davis uh, Convention Center. Um, and ahead of that summit, we're talking about the Great Salt Lake with Linda Freitas, Executive Director of Friends of the Great Salt Lake, Wayne Wurtzba, USU Emeritus Professor of Watershed Sciences, and Marcel Shoup, Director of the National Audubon Society's Saline Lakes uh, Program. So, um, Dr. Wurtzba, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, the, the wildlife, the, the animals. We have the brine shrimp, of course, we're, you know, famous, a big part of the economy. 
Um, what else is living in the lake? That be, and how is that affected as the ecosystem changes? Yeah, the uh, well, there's a lot of organisms that live in in the lake. Uh, sometimes people refer to it as dead because there's no fish or things like that. But uh, we have a lot of different microbes, uh, hundreds really, of different species. But the the larger ones that we can see, and if you go down the lake, are the brine shrimp that you mentioned. Uh, uh, or a quarter-inch-long uh, invertebrate that's extremely important for birds that feed on it. And also, as you mentioned, uh, basis of a industries, uh, 70 to $80 million a year harvesting their, the resting eggs that are produced that float on the surface. And those are sold uh, worldwide uh, for the aquaculture industry. So a lot of the prawns we're eating that uh, you buy at the store may have been produced in Indonesia or elsewhere. Uh, those baby prawns are, are fed the, the little nopuli, it's called the little hatchling of, of, that comes out of these uh, resting eggs. Uh, so those are extremely important, both in the economy and for birds. Uh, another one that gets a little less attention is the brine fly. And they're uh, the larvae that grow down in the lake on the um, what's called microbial lights, these structures, that rock structures that are growing in the lake. The, the brine fly larvae live on those uh, for uh, several months. And then they emerge as adults. And people that have visited the Great Salt Lake uh, know, know the brine flies from walking along the shore. And uh, hundreds of thousands of these are buzzing around your feet. Uh, they don't bite, fortunately, uh, uh, so they're, but they are a little bit of a nuisance. Or I actually enjoy them because it's just kind of an amazing <laughs> sight to see that, that many organ, <laughs> organisms, and they're not hurting you. And they're almost equally or probably equally important uh, as a source of food for uh, multitudes of birds that, that use the lake. Uh, so those are the two invertebrates. Uh, that we have, and those occur primarily in the south arm of the lake, Gilbert Bay. Um, I like to think of the lake as, you know, four or five different lakes that are kind of divided up. So we have the south arm, Gilbert Bay. We have the north arm uh, that gets most of its water, salty water from the south arm, and the waters up there evaporate to, to saturation. Uh, so we have uh, 300 grams per liter um, of salt up there. The ocean, for reference, is about 35 grams per liter. So up in that hypersaline water, as we call it, uh, most of the invertebrates, the brine shrimp, the brine flies can't really grow or reproduce up there. So we have a lot of microbes uh, that live in the water. Uh, Bonnie Baxter at uh, Westminster and a lot of her colleagues are studying those and they're uh, of interest uh, in, for things like uh, study of potential life on Mars that might have had similar uh, hypersaline waters. And uh, those waters up there, the microbes up there uh, have pigments in them that give, it, give the water a pink color. So it's very distinctive. Uh, so we have the north arm, the south arm. Uh, then we have the two what I call estuaries. They're not strictly speaking estuaries, but Farmington Bay and Bear River Bay, where the, we have our major river inflows coming in. And those are uh, 
extremely important because they provide a gradient of salinity all the way from fresh waters where the, the rivers come in to almost the salinities of Gilbert Bay. Uh, and, and so you have this range of salinities, so you have a lot of different organisms that can uh, survive in those waters. And uh, uh, for example, near where the fresher water comes in, we have a, a lot of different fish species in there. And you see pelicans and you see cormorants and, uh, and different birds that are feeding on, on those fishes. So we've got that range from fresh water to uh, hypersaline across the lake. And then we have the dike wet, wetlands uh, as the fifth component. Uh, Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge is the most notable, but all along the, the eastern shore of the lake, we have a, a lot of dike wetlands that provide freshwater habitats uh, for birds and uh, waterfowl, uh, shorebirds, uh, fishes in those uh, habitats as well. And what's concerning about the drought, we talk about the Great Salt Lake, and we've lost over 50% of the area of the Great Salt Lake in general, and that's great concern, and we've got a lot of shoreline-exposed producing dust. But if you look at the estuaries, the Bear River Bay and Farmington Bay, over 80 85% of those have been dried up, and those are extremely important uh, to the bird community. And... Uh, Marcel and Lynn can talk more to the bird aspect of it, but it's not, in, in those habitats, it's a little more dire uh, than in the, the lake as a whole. And I, you know, I've been out in Bear River Bay in, in, in late summer when we're doing research, and uh, sometimes you look out and you have to, I, one time I had to walk out and retrieve a, an instrument that had gotten been stranded by the declining water levels, and you look out and you just miles and miles and miles of baked, sun-dried uh, sediments with no water to be seen. Uh, so that's uh, really serious for the the bird communities that rely on, on those those habitats. We'll turn to Marcel uh, Shoup next. Uh, tell me about the the effect on birds, um, and, and maybe you could put it in context. You. You know the Saline Lakes program. We not only study the Great Salt Lake, but uh, the you know the whole fly pattern. I guess is that the way. You know the the ecosystem that's needed for these migrating birds. For for one, uh, tell me about how shrinking of the lake affects the birds. Well, Great Salt Lake um, actually happens to support some over ten million birds um, and more than three hundred and thirty species. Um, that's pretty um, amazing number of birds, and um, you know that includes um, you know over 21% of the continental population of snowy plovers and um, Wilson phalaropes. And what we know about many of these migrating um, bird species is that they use a number of saline lakes across the western United States, including Great Salt Lake. But Great Salt Lake really is a centerpiece for a number of those migratory birds. And as all of these lakes are stressed, you heard about Owens Lake. We also have um, issues at places like Lake Abert in Oregon. There is a real concern what that effect is going to have on birds as they migrate um, through these habitats on their annual life cycles. We don't have enough data to know, but we know that shorebirds in particular have dropped in numbers by about 73, uh, have, have dropped significantly in numbers since the 70s. 
And um, our scientists have worked the Great Salt Lake Ecosystem Program to analyze uh, some 21 years worth of bird survey data out on Great Salt Lake. And that data went through 2017 and showed on generally that, you know, bird populations for the most part, not this is in every species, were somewhat stable. But what we don't know is that because this is the place that they can come because of these other resources um, are no longer available to them. But additional work on that data um, also showed that when water levels are low um, in the Bear River Bay during July through September, what you see are decreased bird numbers, which is consistent with a lack of food or other water-related habitat features. And that's really important because that's a really important time for fall migration. And we have these large congregations of bird species coming together where you do not have as much habitat, you do not have as much um, uh, food resources, then you are, those populations can be at risk from disease and actually just um, survivability as they travel throughout the year. So we, while there's still a lot more research to be done, in fact, we've got, you know, more years of survey data to analyze, um, it definitely is a concern for how uh, a declining Great Salt Lake and other declining saline lake ecosystems can affect these migratory bird species at a population level. Linda Freitas, I want to start moving the conversation toward uh, us, humans, uh, and impacts. Uh, but but <laughs> sure. if, anything else you'd like to say about, about birds, affecting birds? Well, I, I would like to say that, um, okay, so currently, you know, our population is continuing to grow. And um, predominantly, the concentration of the population is happening in northern Utah and around Great Salt Lake. So the impacts that we're having... Um, with our expanded population on land use um, definitely has direct impacts on potential habitats for birds as well. In addition to the fact that our water use is um, fairly embarrassing for the second most arid state in the nation. We consume about 242 gallons per person per day um, in the state of Utah, and the population is um, projected to double um, by about 2060 to 6 million people. So we'll have you know, a metropolitan area about the size of Philadelphia um, around Great Salt Lake. And so the cumulative impacts of um, the way we have regard or disregard for our water resources, um, our relationship with Great Salt Lake, um, the way we consider um, impacts in our encroaching development around the system um, certainly play into a culmination of, you know, how how are we going to put all of this together and make sure that, um, you know, with water, we still have the integrity of the range of habitats that draw um, these significant um, numbers of birds to the, the lake system. So it's... Um, it's, you know, it's. it would be nice to say that it's just 1 through 10, and um, if we put checks next to those numbers and take care of those um, goals that um, were there. But it's it's ongoing, um, particularly with the shrink wrap of climate change and, um, you know, 
proposed um, increases in temperature in the Great Basin that are going to be fairly significant by 2100. So um, it's it's a matter of um, you know, timing um, our responsibility and responding to it and being effective in the way that we implement measures um, to address um, these environmental uh, considerations. Uh, I want to talk about uh, specifically about air quality. Of course, we we brought up the example of Owens Lake. Uh, they're having terrible air quality problems. Of course, that's a almost totally dry lake. I wonder if we're having uh, increasing problems with exposed, uh, you know, uh, lake bottom, like uh, Professor Wurzbaugh was talking about. Yes, well, um, uh, Dr. Kevin Perry in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Utah um, has done a uh, circumnavigation <clears throat> on the system on his bicycle um, over a period of two to three years. And his goal was to um, collect um, lake bed salt crust samples and then to characterize those samples and determine, you know, what what is in the salt crust um, that, um, you know, when you think about Great Salt Lake being a terminal lake, um, which is the recipient then of everything that comes down into it from inflows, and things that don't evaporate out are sequestered um, in the lake bed. And so um, he did an interesting study and, and looked at what comprises uh, the salt crust of the exposed lake bed, and he found he found um, things like arsenic and lead and, um, you know, uh, the chemistry of um, concern um, as it relates to the potential of these elements becoming airborne in dust and then becoming a public health hazard uh, to those of us here and the ever-growing population um, that's finding their way to Utah as well as economic impacts, um, because we, we do have a reputation of air quality issues, um, winter inversions. Um, most of that comes from uh, transportation and um, those kinds of emissions. But to exacerbate that condition with uh, the exposed lake bed and the chemistry that can come from that um, into the atmosphere is of great concern. Uh, I want to turn to back to Professor Wurzbaugh. You you talked about you know the brine shrimp, brine flies. Um, of course, there's a big industry based on the on the brine shrimp. Uh, also, mineral extraction, which I didn't know until I started looking into this. Uh, Salt Lake Tribune estimated uh, say the, the, the lake supports seven thousand jobs in mineral extraction, brine shrimp harvesting, and, and tourism. A lot of jobs in the billions of dollars in terms of economic uh, impact. I guess obviously if if uh, you know, the, the, the basis for this industry is reduced. The industry is reduced. Uh, yeah, certainly. The, with respect to brine shrimp, for example, uh, if the lake shrinks, you have less area for production of those. Uh, but more seriously, in a terminal lake, as, as the volume goes down, the area goes down, it concentrates the salts. So uh, brine shrimp... Uh, do best at about 100 grams per liter, roughly 10% salinity, ocean 3.5% salinity for reference. Uh, now we're up, I think, about 17% salinity. And, and the higher the salts concentration goes, the more stress it puts on the organism so they can't r reproduce as much. 
So, so far, the brine shrimp industry is doing okay. I think they had good harvests this year. Uh, but if we push that up further and get approach 20%, uh, the shrimp will be stressed severely and and uh, stop reproducing. And that'll impact the the economy from that $60, $70 million industry. It'll also impact the birds that rely on those organisms. Uh, but the biggest industry in terms of dollars produced is the uh, uh, mineral extraction. So we have uh, 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 extraction for magnesium, for uh, uh, fertilizer, uh, and uh, it looks like we'll be having uh, production of selenium and uh, lithium for, for, for producing batteries. And uh, in some ways, as the salts become more concentrated, that can be a benefit to the mineral extraction people because that's the raw product. They don't really want the water in it. Uh, but on the other hand, as the water retracts from their facilities, uh, they have difficulties uh, uh, getting to the water and bringing it into the salt ponds to evaporate it further. So they're very concerned uh, about just access to the brines that they, they rely on uh, for production. Marcel Shoup, uh, before we go to break, um, I want to talk about some other economic impacts. Um, I'm reading just a couple of paragraphs here from testimony you gave to Congress uh, in support of a bill that we'll talk about in the last segment. Um, so you talk about reductions in property values, uh, effect on the snowpack, um, airport operations <laughs> disrupted because of dust. Uh, talk to me a little bit about some of these disruptions that are uh, maybe some of these happening and some potential. Well, the Great Salt Lake Advisory Council sponsored a study um, a couple of years ago um, that issued a report, and they, the economists looked at the kinds of impacts um, that could occur and the costs if Great Salt Lake essentially d- dries up. And there were certain types of impacts. Um, or costs that they identified that they weren't actually able to quantify or put a dollar amount to, but they they looked at um, the potential for loss of property values as you know dust increases. Um, they estimated that you know that could be anywhere from a drop in 0.2 to point or 1.1 percent, and that would also then impact um, tax revenues. They looked at um, the potential for impacts to um, airport operations from dust events. Um, apparently, there have been a couple. But again, they didn't put a uh, value to that, but those are possibilities. And then they also looked at um, the potential for loss of ski resort spending. Um, and that, you know, because Great Salt Lake is an important pre- contributor to the lake effect, that's how we have that light wonderful fluffy snow that brings so many skiers to Utah. Um, And we also um, are concerned about dust on snow events. Um, That potential loss could be anywhere from um, 5.8 million to 9.6 million a year um, or, you know, up to 142 million um, over a 20 year period. And that was based on this report that these um, economists did. um, And it was um, published by the Great Salt Lake Advisory Council. If you just joined us, we're talking about Great Salt Lake with uh, Linda Freitas, with the Friends of Great Salt Lake, Marcel Shoup, you heard from just there, National Audubon Society's Saline Lakes Program, and Wayne Wordspa, he was USU Emeritus Professor of Watershed Sciences. When we come back following a break, 
Let's turn to solutions. Uh, let's brighten the conversation, I guess, and uh, and uh, talk about uh, there. There are some efforts ongoing, have been ongoing, and it seems maybe things are accelerating now. Uh, we'll talk about that following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about the Great Salt Lake on the program today. Great Salt Lake is in trouble, uh, not to put uh, too fine a point on it. Um, uh, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, which uh, named the Great Salt Lake as its Utah of the Year for 2021, drought and increasing diversions of water from upstream have left the Great Salt Lake less great. It's smaller and shallower than it has been in the time since European settlers first started keeping records. We've talked earlier in the hour about uh, effects Worst case uh, scenarios and the scenarios where we just keep going as we have been. Of course, many people have been working on this problem for quite some time, including my three guests. Linda Freitas, Executive Director of uh, Friends of the Great Salt Lake, Wayne Ward Spa, USU Emeritus Professor of Watershed Sciences, and uh, Marcel Shoup, Director of the National Audubon Society's Saline Lakes Program. Representative Brad Wilson, Speaker of the Utah House, has convened a Great Salt Lake Summit. That's uh, they'll be happening tomorrow. Uh, 8 to noon at the Davis uh, Convention Center. Um, the governor put some money in the budget uh, for study. There's some national legislation as well. Let me start with Professor Wurzbaugh. Uh, at the beginning of the program, you uh, you cited some um, uh, studies which kind of outlined uh, why the decrease in lake. A certain percentage is drought, right? But how much percentage was, I guess, us? Yeah, so the estimate is that we've lowered the lake uh, about 11 feet um, by water development for our lawns and primarily for agriculture, also for the salt extraction, mineral extractions that we discussed previously and other uses. So um, so that's 11 feet, and then uh, we're down a total of about uh, 16.5 feet. So I'm not sure exact percentage there, but uh, the uh, bigger chunk is certainly ourselves and uh, we call it a drought and we we hope it's a drought that'll turn around and we'll have a wet period that'll bring it back up but it may well be the harbinger of of climate change that is predicted to decrease precipitation in the basin considerably so that's a that's a huge worry that we we have to deal with yeah Marcel Shoup, you uh, alerted me to a couple of uh, things when we talked yesterday. Uh, maybe talk about that. First of all, an interesting program, a uh, uh, donation of water rights uh, that, that might yeah. might help. Yes, um, there is a wonderful collaboration um, with uh, Audubon, uh, the Nature Conservancy, the Utah Division of Wildlife, and Rio Tinto Kennecott, Central Utah Water Conservancy District and the Utah Reclamation Mitigation and Conservation Commission. And we've been working for the last couple of years trying to um, come up with an approach to essentially water sharing, a voluntary water sharing approach for Great Salt Lake. Um, As many of you know, it's been unclear whether or not one could actually put um, water to use beneficially in the open areas of of the lake. And so we wanted to actually um, try to come up with um, a solution of bringing water uh, to the lake and also putting it to use in the, um, in the open areas, but setting that precedent that 
it is beneficial use for wildlife and recreation. And so in September, we had two um, applications approved by the uh, state engineer's office, um, approving um, a fixed-time use of up to about 21,000 acre-feet um, of water donated by both uh, Rio Tinto Kennecott and Central Utah Water Conservancy District. And um, that is that has now started um, this year because of drought and the timing of when that happened. We obviously haven't had 21,000 acre feet delivered, but the goal has been to get that into Farmington Bay. Um, Farmington Bay, as you know, um, was has historically been very productive from a bird perspective, and it also is one of the areas that is, has some of the most exposed um, lake bed. And so this is a, a project and a program that we're hoping to duplicate in the future um, as we look at, you know, trying to use all the tools out there um, from a policy point of view to try to bring um, more transactions and more water banking and more water leasing as a means of trying to continue to enhance flows for Great Salt Lake. Um, particularly as other water users start to conserve water more than they have in the past. Tell me about federal legislation. This is, uh, I think, uh, among the sponsors are Senator Romney and, and Representative Moore. Yes. Um, so um, Audubon and a number of other organizations, friends and others, um, have been very supportive of federal legislation to, that would actually um, provide funding and authorization for the U.S. Um, Geological Survey to do a five-year program to assess um, what is happening with saline lake systems across the West, including Great Salt Lake, and what is that, uh, take an integrated look at the hydrology, um, water quantity and quality, and what's happening with birds and other wildlife, and um, identify, um, you know, opportunities for um, better uh, um, coordinated management across all those lake systems that are in different jurisdictions, but also help enhance at a local level the um, science that's needed to make good management decisions. And so Representative Moore is the sponsor of the House um, version of the Saline Lakes, Saline Lake Ecosystems and the Great Basin States Program Act of 2021. Um, Representative Jared Hupman from California is the co-sponsor. And then on the Senate side, um, Senator Merkley and Senator uh, Romney have sponsored the Senate version. And both of those are making progress, um, but um, we're hoping to see further movement um, once Congress is back in session. Linda Prentice here on the state level. Of course, uh, Representative Wilson has convened the summit. Uh, Presumably there may may be some legislation. The governor has put $45 million in his budget for Great Salt Lake research and support. Uh, talk to me a bit about what what are the top things you'd like to see happen? Uh, just may, maybe policy or, or, you know, changes in our lifestyle or what what needs to happen to help the Great Salt Lake? Right. Well, you know, kind of as a, uh, as a foundation uh, to um, inspire, if you will, um, how to move forward with the opportunity of having a significant amount of money earmarked for Great Salt Lake needs. 
there was a, uh, a report as a result of the House Concurrent Resolution 10 that was passed by the Utah legislature um, and signed uh, into law by Governor Herbert back in 2019. Um, that acknowledged, actually, the lake was in a state of decline as far as water levels. And the report that came out of that was recommendations to ensure adequate water flows to Great Salt Lake and its wetlands, and that was released in December 2020. And um, there are um, six different uh, focus areas that the report um, concentrates on and develops recommendations and strategies uh, to support these six different areas. And they are things like education and engage, improve information and decision-making, um, optimize agriculture water use. But in addition, there's refined legal and policy options. And um, Great Salt Lake is not considered under um, the prior appropriation water law of the state of Utah. It's not considered a beneficial use, which means that um, unless we um, revise and revisit um, the legal and policy options that we have at hand, um, it's, you know, Thank goodness uh, for the work that National Audubon and TNC and Rio Tinto Kennecott are exploring in order to exercise a model that would bring water to Great Salt Lake um, through this collaborative, um, uh, you know, compact, if you will. But we need to do a better job in recognizing the fact that the lake is beneficial use, um, given the fact that $1.32 billion um, is contributed to Utah. GDP annually through ecosystem services. So um, I would like to see uh, from the governor's earmark um, and legislative action um, about half of that amount of money being put into a trust for the lake uh, to be used for um, purchasing water leases and potential water right opportunities. Um, certainly, every 10 years, um, the Department of Natural Resources and the Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands, which is responsible for sovereign lands throughout the state of Utah, Great Salt Lake is a sovereign land, um, they, um, they put together a comprehensive management plan uh, that helps the division of forestry, fire, and state lands um, consider ways in which the system can be effectively managed to sustain ecosystem services while under um, the, the array of needs that um, the state of Utah has for this public trust resource. And um, unfortunately, the limits of the division forestry, fire, and state lands um, are limited to what's called the meander line, which is an elevation of the lake at the time of statehood when it was acquired as a sovereign land from the federal government. So um, there are a lot of um, interesting, you know, kind of um, tweaks and attitudinal um, changes that need to be um, affected for us to be able to translate uh, what the governor has um, inspired us to consider um, and and make that happen in reality um, so we can make changes to the system. We just have about a, a minute and a half uh, left to give uh, Professor Wurzba the, the last word. I've been looking at this map you have in, in front of you, the, your far left there, uh, which I think we've, we've all been familiar with, the, uh, the outline of the way the, the lake used to be and the way it is now, right? 
Um, I guess just one minute, what, what, what's your hope? Do you have hope that we can make progress toward that older outline? Uh, yeah, I think we can. That that line is at an elevation of 4,207 feet, and that's, well, well as we said, about s- s- close to 17 feet above where we are now. And I don't know that we need to go back there to have a good functioning ecosystem. An elevation of 4,200 feet is what the state often uses as kind of a goal, and they, it's called an average, but not really a true average. Uh one hope I have is that although we're looking at more water development uh, with the Bear River Project, if we look at water use, as Lynn said earlier, we have some of the highest water uses uh, anywhere. And we use uh, about three times more water per capita uh, than people in Tucson, for example. Yet we pay seven times less for that water. And so that's a kind of a bad news story, but it also gives us an opportunity if we start conserving and don't have huge lawns and, and don't have uh, strips of lawn along the street that we pour water on. Uh, I think we can uh, develop our population and, and conserve enough water to meet the needs of those, those, those new people in our, in our society. So uh, there's hope there because we, we're so wasteful right now. If we become more reasonable about it, uh, we can save a lot of water. We will uh, leave the conversation there. Of course, much more uh, to be said and much more to be done. We'll uh, keep an eye on this. We've been talking about the Great Salt Lake with uh, Linda Freitas, Executive Director of Friends of Great Salt Lake. Uh, Linda Freitas, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, we've uh, had with us uh, Marcel Schroop, director of the National Audubon Society's Saline Lakes Program. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Wayne Wurzbaugh has joined us in studio. He's USU Emeritus Professor of Watershed Sciences. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah Today.